Welcome back, Warriors Tunsei Sego Anibuju, Kwe Nin Deluisi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And defending our sovereignty isn't just about protecting our peoples and our nations, it's also about protecting the lands, waters, plants, and animals as well. Part of that is supporting one another in the work we do on the ground and in our advocacy. The job never ends, and it can be very overwhelming, and that's why supporting each other is so important, so that we all know that none of us are alone in our resistance. One of the people you can always count on for advice, guidance, and support is Reuben George. Reuben is from the Tsleil-Waututh Nation, and in addition to being a Sundance chief, he has also been a driving force behind his nation's revitalization of language, culture, spirituality, and law. We had Ruben on our podcast previously to talk about his culture, his family, and his life's work, which includes nearly a decade of action trying to stop the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, now the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And I'll be sure to post a link to that previous podcast so you can hear all about Ruben. Since that time, Ruben hosts his own live stream series for Sacred Ecology, a documentary film project about the importance of cultural preservation and the preservation of biodiversity. The live stream series is called Truth, Family, Culture, and Health, where Ruben interviews Indigenous elders, cultural leaders, and environmental activists. You can find his show on Facebook, YouTube, and on the Sacred Ecology website. Today's podcast is actually a special one. It's an extended clip from Ruben's podcast where he interviewed me. Though I have to say, it was less like an interview and more like a super energetic conversation about all of the work that Ruben and I and everybody else is doing to help protect our peoples and the planet. So let's get right into it. Welcome, everyone. We're excited to have my friend Pam on the show. She's badass. I shouldn't say that, just in case you go to some places that your discretion is advised. Yes. <laughs> no, but... um. You are though, and 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 every time we talk, I for sure learn something, and and um, I, I just you're you're um, a true champion for our lands, waters, and people, and uh, you know you're very articulate with your your doctrine in law and your law degree and multiple degrees, and and um, but you know and more importantly, you're 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 just one of the peeps, and and you know you. You, you do so many great things, so many great things. 30 years, you, she's been doing this since she's five years old. Yes, yes. five years, I swear, five years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look so young um, and you've done so much and, and it's awesome to have you on our show. I was, you know, and, 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 I was, and I was happy to hear you speak and, and teach us. And, and, um, and I've, been, I've been watching some of your... Um, some of your TikTok. <laughs> those are really fun. I, I enjoy those. Like a little bit of dancing, a little bit of moves. <laughs> you, you know, we, you have to teach us how to how you put the quotes above you and you point at them. And yeah. <laughs> but but it's it's and really um all that aside, I, I appreciate what you do for our land, our water, our people, our murdered missing women. All, you know, there's so much that that you're involved in and 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 as it is like 
with our indigenous communities, um, we wear multiple hats and, and we do multiple things. And so, you know, I, I know you do that. So it's much, much more than what we see and what you're doing and when you're involved with your community. And, and, um, and that's why you're, you're, I, I seen maybe, maybe you could explain this to us that you, you have, your education is, is diverse to a little bit and, but an impressive, but it, I, I wonder what was the driving force? Maybe we could start with that for you and the passion that you have and the spirit that you have to, to work on all these things and talk about our land, water and people rights. What, what got you going on that? What was, what was, what was the thing that really pushed you forward and, 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 and as well as introduce yourself too. <laughs> Thanks Ruben. Uh, I'm from the sovereign Mi'kmaq nation and unceded Mi'kmaq territory. My home reserve is Ugbaganjig or Il Rabar First Nation. Um, and it's an honor to be here because I love doing events with you, Ruben, because we could just talk for hours about all of these issues. Yeah. And the last event that we did, it's so funny because we were guest speakers on a panel, but it ended up Ruben and I were talking about strategy and how to, you know, do yeah. X, Y, and Z and advance the issues. And we kind of forgot about the whole panel. It was all just strategy. So um, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, obviously honored to be here and and you know your work is incredible um to your question what got me started oh my gosh i have a ginormous family like many native people do i have eight sisters and three brothers and most of them are older than me and they were all activists so when i was a little girl they were taking me to protests, to community meetings, to government negotiations, to stuff that when I was little, I thought was kind of boring and I didn't understand what was going on. And, you know, I'd rather be playing with my, you know, dolls or something. But that's what really ingrained it in me because it, it just becomes a part of you. I didn't understand, like, why are people yelling? Why are they screaming? Why are some of the women crying? Why is why is it so emotional? And I I really couldn't understand that until over time I could you know once you start understanding what the issues were, then I could see this this stuff really matters you know. And for some people they're like a part time volunteer you know at a soup kitchen you know three hours a week or something. But my family always taught me that. I didn't even have the right to call myself a Mi'kmaq person or claim to be part of the Mi'kmaq nation unless what I was doing was contributing to the nation, not asking what the nation was doing for me, but what I was contributing. And so they kind of ingrained this idea that no matter what it is you're doing, a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, you know, a land defender, a water protector, everything that you're doing has to have at its core protecting the people, the plants, the animals, and everything in your territory as your nation, as well as not forgetting all of our, you know, internation relatives and all of the people with whom we have native treaties or native confederacies. And so it, it was really, you can just blame everything on them. I mean, the, every kitchen table conversation, every time we saw each other, it was just a massive bunch of us talking and being emotional and yelling and crying and how are we going to fix this and how are we going to stop them from you know imprisoning our hunters and how do we advocate for our women and so it's just it's life it's it's it just becomes your life it's an, an inherent part of your identity 
And so that that's really where it comes from. And I always tell people, I don't say anything original. Everything that I that's planted in my head comes from my aunties, my uncles, my brothers, my sisters, my family, elders that I've ever talked to, everyone I've met all over Turtle Island, because we're we've all just been born into this, you know, and and in order for us to protect our peoples in the future, we just have to keep doing this and we have to keep adapting and finding ways to adjust and change and respond because government learns quickly and then responds to what we're doing. So we always kind of have to be a step ahead. And so that's kind of where it comes from. Yeah, I was talking to one of our elders here and, and just to end what you just, just the end part of what you said was made me think of this is, he said, it feels like there's a set standard that Canada goes by by dealing with each nation right across our country. And, and now I, I look at, you know, UNDRIP, United Nations Declaration on Indigenous Rights that I, I called it as soon as they came out and said they're going to sign and do something that that, that would be a ne- mechanism that they would use to continue to do what they do. And that's a big problem because um, I, I know in your scope of work that you do with murdered missing women, I, I seen how they dealt with essentially how they dealt with the pipelines. It's the same way. Mm-hmm. And how they deal with everything else, social services, how there's more ch- children in care than ever. What, what's, what's your comment on that? On, 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 on how they deal with us and dealing with the government and dealing with how they deal with how they, you, you mentioned it a little bit of, of yeah. always, always a battle, always. And it doesn't have to be. And, and part of the problem is like historically the, the, their most effective means was dividing us from our strength, which is our collective, right? Our collective and our culture, because when you're grounded in your culture, literally you're immovable. You are an immovable force. Um, And similarly, if you are surrounded by your collective, you know, whether it be a clan, a village, a house, um, uh, you know, your nation, you you are also protected. It's, It's when they can get you as individuals, pick you off as individuals, um, or separate you from h- how you are grounded so that the space that's in your head is occupied by colonizer ideas instead of our ideas. And that's why decolonization is so important. And the other, so the other aspect of that, you know, the way in which they've been able to be effective against us is in each battle that they fight with our nations, we don't know the terms on which they're fighting that battle. We don't know the results of things that have happened. Um, we don't know, you know, what they're negotiating in this agreement versus what they're doing over here. We don't know what Fisheries and Oceans is doing on the West Coast and and whether or not that's applying on the East Coast. And so traditionally or historically, they've had that advantage of no information, right? Because it took a long time for us to get information to one another. Nowadays, we have cell phones and social media, and we know things that are happening before they do. And so it's much easier now when we're, say, dealing with fisheries and oceans, like a super enforcement, racist, colonized corporate entity that it is, is so far away from a conservative or a conservation kind of mode. This is really about protecting the industries. Now we, I can literally just call you up, Ruben, and say, hey, here's the problem we're having on the East Coast uh, around enforcement, around, you know, this moderate livelihood, around Section 35, any of these things. What are you doing? What, what are they arguing over here on this hand? And you will find when you compare notes 
on, you know, it could be DFO, it could be the RCMP, it could be Justice Canada, that they are doing different things in different places. And our power is really bringing all of that information together because they want us to sign confidential agreements, non-disclosure agreements, keep negotiations private. But when we do that, we disadvantage everybody else. So there's strategic ways around those things that takes their power away because their power has always been lack of information. And so you have to assume that what they're saying is right, or you have to give them the so-called benefit of the doubt. And I think we always have to assume that they are not acting in our best interests and we have to act accordingly. So I would say it's really about making sure that, you know, we're not doing this stuff alone, that we're grounded in our cultures, but also we've got the collective behind us, uh, the broader collective and uh, sharing information on all of these files, because it does matter, even though we have different nations, different territories, different kinds of rights, how they treat us and how they defeat us are the same and you know we've got to we've got to respond and stay ahead of them yeah i we we talked about this last but we we had a victory here on the on the on the west coast but what we're talking about is them trying to determine what is what is what is how much lobster you could fish yeah and then we talked about scientifically everybody all the experts in every area said the first nation lobster fish will not affect no. anything no. Nothing, nothing. No. The, the New Chalmuth Nation, maybe you can look it up, Peter. Um, they just won last week a, a fishing rights, um, I, I believe, because they're trying to determine what is what is sustainable fishing. I mean, not sustainable. How much do we need for for to, to eat? And, and they're trying to determine that for us. And that's what we talked about. But it's a shame, like with all these things, and the Canadian Constitution, Section 35, protects our rights, but we still have to go to court improve yeah. these things improve them i mean improve them it's ridiculous but that, and that's... over and over that's the yeah. problem ruben over and over and over and over on the exact same issue sparrow we it? have a right to fish okay now vanderpeet has to prove it now gladstone has to prove it now you know marshall has to prove it oh and marshall doesn't just have to prove it once now we're gonna to have to go to court again and prove that yeah we still have the same right the supreme court of canada said and it's a game that they play over and over and over again because they don't want to fully recognize those rights. And here's the problem with Section 35. Native people fought very hard to have Section 35 in there, protection for Aboriginal treaty rights, title, self-government, all of that stuff. However, the government has used it, has weaponized it against us. So instead of being this, this protective mechanism, they use it as a means to drill down and through our rights every single time. If you listen to the arguments they make in all of these Section 35 cases, first of all, they will deny that you have the right altogether. And then the alternative argument, well, even if you do have the right, it was extinguished. And another alternative argument, even if you do have it and it's not extinguished, well, it's we have a legislative objective to limit it to what we want to do. And it's like every argument they make is consistently denial, 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 denial. And that is not what the spirit of Section 35 is. Section 35 was supposed to be like a shield to protect our rights. And they haven't used it that way. They've weaponized it. And I think we have to understand that and pick and choose which cases we bring and which cases we don't bring and under what context and what we're arguing and what we don't argue to make sure that whenever we take Canada to court, it's to tear down their laws and their bad 
policy making decisions and nothing that can hurt our um, rights, for example, because even when we prove it, we have to do it again. I mean, look at what's happening in Nova Scotia right now. DFO is like, yeah, despite, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada, despite the fact that we said we'll recognize your rights, we're just going to go back to the same old way of having these lobster seasons. And, you know, Sebag and Agity and others have said, no, that's not what's going to happen. We have the inherent sovereign right to enact our own laws, our own governing practices based on Mi'kmaq uh, laws and science, based on uh, uh, conservation science. And we put that all together to protect the species and manage the resource, as well as make sure that our people can eat. I mean, if they could, they would deny us every last fish and see us starve for the sake of industry to make money. And that's what we're fighting against. Can you give more of an update of what's going on right now today? Yeah, yeah. So I think the last time that we spoke, you saw all of the violence that yeah. was happening, uh, all of the stuff that was really flashy with the fires and the threats and everything else. And then it kind of died out in the media, but the violence never stopped. So there's still violence against um, our children out east. There's still violence against adults, threats ongoing. Um, there's still the, these non-native fishermen, who many of whom identify as Acadian fishermen, um, are uh, badgering, bullying, harassing, and terrorizing uh, people who engage in fish sales, like the, the market people. Um, so the middle, the middle people who do all the sales. Um, the same with local businesses. Local businesses weren't serving Mi'kmaq people anymore. So you, you still have a lot of uh, violence and racism, overt racism happening. And then you have the minister or the Department of Fisheries and Oceans who basically said, determined on their own, without consulting with or, uh, you know, getting the consent of all of the Mi'kmaq chiefs in Nova Scotia, that they're just going to go ahead DFO is going to enforce the seasons and um, they're going to make arrests and, and keep confiscating and pressing charges. And you see now there's a whole host of Mi'kmaq people that are facing court charges who've had their uh, lobster and or equipment uh, confiscated. They're saying they're going to do it again. But Sebag and and other Mi'kmaq fishers are saying, no, we're holding strong. We are not going to give in to the violence, the law enforcement, or any of the intimidation this time, we are going to manage our own fishery. And, you know, that's where it is. It's a very precarious position for our people to be in knowing that, look at how bad the violence got last time. Look at how easy it is for them to press charges, make us go to court, make us spend money. But um, the Sebaganagity community is not taking it laying down. They've filed lawsuits against the government, lawsuits against the people who were uh, engaged in these, you know, really horrific acts of violence. And they're pursuing other means to assert their rights. And, and that couldn't make me any prouder because th that's a huge burden for these people to bear, knowing that they're walking around the community and they face these threats of violence and they face this racism and the government who pretended when it was all in the media that, yes, we're going to sit down and yes, we're going to do what's right. They didn't. And we knew they wouldn't. And, you know, you, you see statements from DFO saying nothing's going to change the way that we manage the fisheries. And that just shows you the bad faith on the table, because if nothing can change the way they do fisheries, it means they can't possibly be respecting our rights. They're not coming to the table in a good way to accommodate or even consider our interests. And so it's poisoned or tainted right from the beginning. 
they're so afraid. And I know this, that, that they're afraid. Because mm-hmm. when we start talking, like you say, and this is what we talked about, you know, I, I really like the, what we were working on, what I told you a little bit with my, my uncle Len, mm-hmm. we're, we're like all the, all the efforts that we put into that uh, Kinder Morgan TMX, the assessments, analysis, we, we do this to a certain degree already with uh, Ministry Children's Service. We have a protocol agreement. With them. They can't come on our res without our consent or do any work without us making sure. And to, to a certain degree, the police and then education, all that. But we, we want to do it more within our law within our law. And, and when we wanted that, we wanted to share it. Yeah. We wanted to share it to, to, cause we're all the same law. What you're doing over there is, is uh, you know, our medicine wheel is the four points of longhouses, truth, family, health, and culture. That's the foundation. Then you add the fundamentals of all any religious belief, love or honor, respect, dignity. That, that's how we try to improve our lives and, and run our lives and run our communities and protect everything we love, lands, waters, and people. So it just drives me crazy just listening to that because it's the same crap here. And and I know you've been doing really good work around murder and missing women. And, and that was crazy too. Um they they asked me to 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 MC part of part of the inquiries here. And I talked to my lawyer friends here and they're like, you know what? It it didn't it, it did good that they listened to the stories, but the inquiry should have been on the police, the judges the corners and all those things. I know you've been working on that. Do you have, can you share a little bit? Yes. So yes to everything that you said. One of the most frustrating things was when we knew that finally they were going to have an inquiry, we didn't wait for them to develop the terms of reference. We got a whole bunch of Indigenous women together from a wide variety of backgrounds and we sat down, we said, okay, what needs to be in this terms of reference so that we can tell them? And we said, you absolutely must have an independent investigation into all of the individual cases of murdered and missing Indigenous women, including the ones that you consider solved, because we know how they solve things. Um, They don't solve them properly. They don't investigate them. So we wanted an independent review of that, like a forensic review. And then we also wanted an investigation into the police, the ways in which police, uh, any form of law enforcement, so police officers, RCMP, DFO, corrections officials, anyone involved in law enforcement to be investigated for their role, not just in the failure to protect women or investigate, but in their role as perpetrators. Because my research that I did for the inquiry was all related to police involvement in sexualized violence against Indigenous women and girls on a widespread basis, both uh, when they're in custody, like in prisons, uh, when they're in cop cars, when they're picked up by police officers, and of course, in other um, in other areas. And so, you know, we, we definitely wanted this forensic review. We wanted an investigation of the police. And the other thing we wanted them to investigate in, in detail was the link between the extractive industry and murdered and missing Indigenous women, exploitation, human trafficking, child porn rings, all of those things connected to things like man camps and other development practices that we knew we had at least basic evidence that, the, that these rates were increased wherever there was development, especially around man camps. 
and the tie with police officers and law enforcement around those things. So we know that from the research, whenever there is a child porn ring sting or a human trafficking sting, we there's always cops that are caught up. There's always teachers, there's also social workers, parole officers, corrections officials. So basically everybody who's involved in institutionalizing or oppressing Indigenous women and girls are also the perpetrators in this. And they absolutely refused. They absolutely refused to do that. We, and we know why, that the provinces wouldn't agree to pass orders and councils for these terms of reference if the police were there. And so instead, we had a terms of reference that said, oh yeah, and if you have a problem with the police, you can just go and complain to the police. The same police who threaten your life if you say anything. So to me, those were some like significant gaps that were in the national inquiry that really points the finger at the state. And, and, you know, to me, the primary issue here is state perpetrators, you know, so hospital officials, doctors, nurses who are engaged in all of the forms of genocide against Indigenous women, be it forced sterilizations, forced abortions, sexual assaults, I mean, you name it. I wanted them to look specifically at the state instead of just looking at things like poverty in general as the reason, you know, kind of take the focus off of the women as, you know, being blamed for so-called high-risk lifestyles and put the focus back on the state because genocide is not a high-risk lifestyle. Genocide is a minefield that is nearly impossible to survive. And to say that all of the ways in which Indigenous women and girls navigate that minefield of genocide could somehow be faulted for that is, is absolutely incredible and it turns the tables. So I was very disappointed in that. I still participated in the sense of making a submission jointly with the Feminist Alliance for International Action and Can Canadians Without Poverty. And we also made like oral and written testimony. And um, we said, they still have to address these things. And you'll note that one of the recommendations that came out of the National Inquiry has got almost zero attention. And that is that the National Inquiry recommended that a separate National Inquiry be held into the relationship between the extractive industry and murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. But you, you hear nothing, absolutely nothing about that. And I think a lot of things about that. And, you know, just... Just to because we are talking about murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, and now I'm kind of on a rant. Um, the, the federal government is going to be issuing a pathway document, which is going to be their stated intention that they are someday going to be coming up with a plan to deal with murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. Note that we're almost two years past the final report of the National Inquiry. And five years since the start of the National Inquiry. Now remember, Minister Bennett and other ministers at the time said, don't worry, we're not gonna wait until the National Inquiry concludes their business before we start taking urgent action on murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. Not only did they wait all of that time for the final report, but we're two years later and they still haven't acted. We have, we took them back to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and demanded that they do something about genocide on murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. And you know what their response was to the Inter-American Commission at the time? Um, they said, sorry, we're in election mode. You know, you know, we can't do anything. And I was like, excuse me, but if Russia were to invade our territory and start a war, would you sit back and say, no, I'm sorry, I can't address this. I'm in election mode. No, 
genocide's a national crisis. And then of course, oh, but the big issue is pipelines. Oh, and now the issue is the pandemic. Literally everything comes before the well-being of Indigenous women and girls. So um, I just think it's really important that people understand that Canada hasn't just fallen down, hasn't failed, has made purposeful choices not to act. They've already been found guilty of historic and ongoing genocide. And you can't be found guilty of genocide unless you have the requisite intention. And all of the evidence shows Canada intended to commit these acts of genocide. And every day that they don't act on it, that's also intentional. And they need to be held to account for this inaction. Wow. Yeah. You're, you're getting me fouled up too. So <laughs> I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. And it's, and, and, and you know, I, when I, when I hear you speak on all this, it, I, I understand a little bit. And I think this way is that they're suppressing for a reason, mm-hmm. they're suppressing mm-hmm. for a reason, because at the other side of it, like Art Manuel, you know, the, the late Art Manuel, he said, you know, for decades, our elders and our people have been fighting for our rights. And that really, he goes right now, that door of opportunity is open now. Take advantage of it before it closes and never opens again. But that's what they're afraid of too, is that when, when like you, educated and work on this, like I'm really proud of this next generation coming up. Like oh, yeah. people, my, my kids' age, they're just just badass. And they're going to they're gonna do a lot of really great things. And that's what they're afraid of, it feels like. What's your thoughts on it? Oh my gosh, that is the thing that they have been obsessively terrified about that, you know, A, we would start to look at ourselves in in all the beauty and wonder and pride of our people and our cultures again, and let that be what fills us up and motivates us to go forward. Um, They're terrified of that. I don't know more. We, We weren't violent. We weren't, you know, terrorizing people. We didn't bring guns to the party. I don't know more showed Canada the thing they're most scared of. Not only are we still here, but we're still proud, despite all of the ways in which they have torn us down. And despite all of the ways in which we are still the walking wounded, we're the maybe the walking wounded, but we're proud of who we are. And we will fight to the death to protect our territories and our people and all of the living things here. And that terrified them. And you know how we know that because of all the access to information requests that we made to the RCMP, to the Department of National Defense, to CSIS, to Indian Affairs and to others to look at what are the things that they're concerned about. I made my own access to information request and I got thousands of documents, lots of them redacted from different organizations. But if you look at all of the ways in which Indian Affairs monitored just just what I was doing, for example, they they were scared of two primary things. Um, The first one was that First Nations would start to believe that they're sovereign again. So every time I talk, I try to remind people, yes, we are still sovereign. It may have been interfered with. There may be challenges ahead of us, but nothing ever extinguished or eliminated our sovereignty. So long as there's one of us breathing on this territory, this is sovereign native territory. And they were terrified of that. So there's lots of emails going back and forth. Oh, my gosh, you know, all these First Nations leaders are going to start thinking that they're independent. And then the other thing that they were terrified about, now keep in mind, this was during I don't know more 2012 2013 was that I was going around telling people that Canada was guilty of genocide and all the ways in which Canada was guilty of genocide because you've got two things going on here one when people are you know proud of who they are and they're resisting uh 
things like genocide, that can be very motivational because you're very protective of your people and all of those other things. And then when you couple that with, yeah, and we're sovereign and we have the power to do this and we have the power to take back our people and our culture, um, that's a very powerful force. So then you had the RCMP and you had some racist academics writing reports for the government saying, whoa, you know, we've got a problem. You know, we've got a cohort, a young cohort of Indigenous peoples, which they described as a cohort, a cohort of mostly youthful people, uh, pride of their culture, knowledgeable about the fact that these are their lands, ready to defend their lands in terms of, you know, land defenders, water protectors, and all of these things. And they said the worst thing that could possibly happen is if all of these people coalesce and get together and become a united force. And I was like, thank you you just wrote the book on what our resistance is going to be and so you know if they're terrified that there's something to it and i think part of the problem is that so many times we don't even believe we have the power you know it seems monumental it seems overwhelming you've got the federal government all the provincial governments they have all the money they have all the police officers with their guns and everything else but look at the difference our people make and one person one hummingbird can make a difference and can stop billion dollar industries. And we just need to believe in that again. And no, that doesn't happen overnight. How long have we been fighting Trans Mountain? Forever. But the hummingbird showed up and said, okay, you have our back, we'll have your back right now. And it's the same all across the country. It could be the Southern residents, you know, killer whales. It could be um, birds. It could be the wetlands. It could be anything else. So long as we are always acting from our cultures where we're protecting all of those living things, they will always have our back. And I truly believe that. And I just think we need to remember how much power is in that. Like I look at, you know, political organizations and all of that stuff and they all perform different things but the the most progress we've ever made has come from individuals taking on Canada it will be those three elderly ladies out in uh Wollastoquay territory who said you know what we're going to try and stop this mine you know these grandmothers and no one paid any attention and then it it did start to pay attention then people started to join them and then now it's a thing. And now the government has to deal with it. And it's the same across the country. I look at Cindy Blackstock and what she has done for First Nations kids in foster care. And she just refuses to give up. She refuses to make deals. There is no deal to be made on First Nation kids in foster care. Or Cher McIver from Lower Nicola Band. She sued Canada over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until she won. And now she just she's still at the United Nations saying, yeah, but what you did was not good enough for all of the women and children, so we're gonna keep going. And you know what? I put my faith in individuals. There's far more power in that than in the political deal-making. And that's what really inspires me. And I just wish everybody would see the incredible power that we have and they wouldn't be scared if we weren't powerful. That's right. That's right. Um, one thing that we're looking at, and I think I talked a little bit about this about you, and yeah, it looks like we are going to the United Nations. We are going to do some filing there, but it, it would be good to um, go together because November Trudeau's going over. You remember, he tried to get on the Security Committee, and the nation said, "You don't even listen to our recommendations. Why would we want you on there?" So we want to be there. And I know um, that was on recommendations from the Union BC Indian Chiefs that are working with some people up north, and 
I, I know the Mohawks would be interested in coming mm. and there's a couple in the, in the planes that want to come, but we, this, this is something that we should team up on and go. We should oh, for sure do that. For sure. Because that's the other thing about, we have since there has even been a such thing as the United Nations, our representatives from our sovereign nations have been going to both the United Nations and the Inter-American Commission, making submissions and saying, we are sovereign nations. This is what's happening in our territories. You need to hold Canada or the United States, Australia or Aotearoa, New Zealand to account. Uh, for all of these human rights abuses and failure to respect our rights. And we've been heard and they continue to make recommendations forcing Canada's hand. <coughs> they don't have an army to come in and, and you know make Canada do anything. However, there's a significant amount of political pressure. And, and so you've got the political pressure on that end, but then you also have every time they make a recommendation, then you've got courts in Canada who can say, hmm, you know what, we should take judicial notice of those recommendations and see if Canada is complying with its international human rights obligations, like UNDRIP, for example. I mean, UNDRIP is, at, we've been pleading UNDRIP since 2007, since it was passed. And so we need to keep doing that. And the, what I like most about it is once we get there, whether it's in Geneva or Washington or wherever it is that we are, we've got Indigenous peoples from all over the world that come together and we strategize in camera. So we don't do it for the states or any of their, you know, uh, bureaucrats to listen, but we strategize about who's going to do what and, and who's going to make what submissions so that we can maximize our submissions. And we already do that to some extent here in Canada. And what's great about it is most of these submissions come from like grassroots uh, as opposed to the big national organizations, you know, they have their usual speaking, whatever, but the actual powerful submissions come from the grassroots people who are organizing together. So, um, you know, whether it's uh, the Tsleil-Waututh or um, Mi'kmaq people or Haudenosaunee people or Wet'suwet'en or Shekwepmik or all these different groups coming together. So sometimes it's joint submission, sometimes it's individual, but it's the strategy behind it. We are always working, even when people don't see it. And Canada hates that they don't know that because we we don't do the same political circles. We don't actually invite Canadian officials to sit down and hear our strategies, like what happens with some national Aboriginal organizations who invite every government official and every industry. There's no industry in our strategy sessions. And I think that's what makes us really powerful. They can't put a finger on what it is we're doing or what we're going to do next. Because the other thing that's really important is we don't go around making false um, threats to anything. We don't say, oh, if you don't do this, we're going to do this. We just say, okay, you here's your opportunity to act in good faith. And if you don't, yeah, it might be quiet for a while, but then shit happens. And they have no idea that it's coming, who it's coming from, or what kind of supports they have. And they really misjudge what happens on social media. And I think we just need to keep being very strategic about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm, trying really <laughs> I'm trying really hard to stay from our Indigenous political national. <laughs> I won't. I won't go there. Okay. Okay. Sounds good to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm trying not to. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, that's 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 what we want to do, and we 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 for sure will talk about that with you. I know there's other nations, people mm -hmm. like us, like, right in every province that want to do something and move something forward and coming together as a collective would be really good and really important and really powerful. And um, but um, yeah. What what are you working on right now? 
Well, I just did a session with four chiefs from New Brunswick, two from the Mi'kmaq Nation and two from the uh, Wollastaquay Nation because the premier in New Brunswick, a conservative, Premier Higgs, of course, uh, has been doing a lot of dog whistle, racist, hateful, divisive uh, comments about First Nations. He lost a case against First Nations that they brought because the province kept making um, all of these decisions that were violating First Nation rights. They lost the case. And so they retaliated by saying, oh yeah, we're gonna cancel your resource agreements. They just gave notice, no talking to any chiefs, no good faith table. They just reacted to that. And they didn't just cancel those agreements. They said, oh, by the way, these agreements are would be unfair. What they do is they create super wealthy First Nations. And it's unfair to other businesses if First Nations have these agreements. So we know what that means. Unfair. We had the same problem. Racist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's racist terminology to say you don't deserve your native rights. We're not going to respect your native rights. <clears throat> and then the other side of things that these super wealthy First Nations, we know that the vast majority of First Nations in the country uh, are impoverished, not all of them, but the vast majority. And those who are the most impoverished get to which side of the country they come from. Yeah, that would be the Atlantic region. So you're talking about some of the most impoverished First Nations in all of Canada. And you've got this premier saying, oh, they're super wealthy because they get resource agreements. Really? Show me all of the Mercedes Benz that they're driving around, all the mansions that they're living in. Show me their clean water. Show me all of these things that prove what you're saying. And of course they're not. It's just racist language. And so that was one of the things I was working on. Um, The media wasn't giving enough time to First Nations, obviously. They just kept perpetuating this racist narrative. So I had them on a panel to say, okay, what are all the issues here? What's happening? What do New Brunswickers need to know? And obviously still also working on what's happening with Mi'kmaq in Nova Scotia with our, with, you know, our fishing rights. And um, at the same time, we've also been working, trying to push the government to to have some kind of plan to deal with genocide against Indigenous women and girls, but not as the controller of the plan. Why would you ask a state perpetrator of genocide to come up with a plan of how they're not going to do genocide anymore? That's like, you know, asking the abuser to come up with a plan of, you know, how they're going to treat the person they abuse all the time. I'm sorry, no. And that's not how it works in other countries. So what we've been making um, uh, submissions to the Inter-American Commission and the United Nations saying we need independent international oversight um, to work with Indigenous women who will lead the way on what's going to happen with Uh, ending genocide in Canada. Of course, you know, um, Canada's having nothing to do with it. So we're just, we're trying to pin them down on a whole bunch of issues um, in in every forum. So what doesn't work on the political side, then there might be litigation over here. What doesn't work here, then there might be, you know, demonstrations in the streets and what doesn't work over here, we will hurt you in different areas. So for example, you already raised when Trudeau was just flying around the world, 
trying to win this precious seat on the UN Security Council. And we said, oh, oh, no, you're not, mister. You're not dealing with genocide. Well, we are going to make submissions to other countries. We are going to make submissions to the UN. We are going to be loud about it. We're going to write opt-eds. We're going to do all, like we did all of these things. And we lobbied with other countries to say, do not give Canada that seat. You cannot be a state perpetrator of genocide and sit on the UN Security Council and purport to be about safety and human rights for the rest of the world. That would be counter to the whole purpose of the UN Security Council. And they lost that seat. And so we have to celebrate every single one of these victories, even if it only lasts for a day, even if a court decision gets turned over in a couple of months, we have to celebrate all of these victories because these victories are powerful. And it's only when we acknowledge them, you know, if we stop transmount for one day, one week, if we stop, you know, coastal gasoline pipeline for three weeks because of wetlands, you know, if we stop Doug Ford from destroying all of the wetlands on Mississaugas of Scugog territory here for one week, two weeks, three weeks, all of these things are victories and they're power because you know, you know, the energy, you know, you've got powerful, positive, righteous energy, it feeds itself. And we need to do more of that feeding instead of, you know, only looking at, oh, look at the government's doing this and this and this, because we've, we've survived genocide. We've outlasted them this long. We've survived every minister of Indian affairs, every prime minister. We can survive the next 100 because we were the first people here and we will be the last people here. And I think we just need to remember that, that there's a lot of difficulty in the middle, but it's always been our mission to be the caretakers. And so we got this we got this and we're just getting stronger every day that's right that's right you, you know one thing that i think of when you, you just mentioned it is is the media like you look at look at trudeau when he does his town hall meetings and i really wanted to speak there and i talked to a couple of elders and he said you know he'll, he'll just make you his best look unreasonable i wanted to give it a shot anyway but i ended up getting talked out of it but i, I look at what the, the things that he will say it's for jobs we we've proven that We've proven it's not the economy. We've proven that, you know, they're they're basing their their analysis on eighty dollars a barrel. They never changed once. We did multiple economic studies. We have done we did the spill analysis. Even when we went to court, they said the discrepancy between the spill analysis is quite a big difference. Looks like to slay with your right, but we're still going to side of the best interests of Canada. Three handpicked judges of federal court of appeal, handpicked by Trudeau. Of course, they're going to do things like that. But when it goes back to the media, they they say, yeah. They won. Okay, it's good. Or, or Trudeau saying, yeah, he said it's for jobs. Oh, it must be for jobs. Then the people think that. The people think yes. that. They pull the wool right over their eyes. And, and look out your window. Look out your look at the weather change. Look at everything's changed. Look at 80% of the mammals have died since I've been born. 50% of the world's species have died. Figure these things out. And, and we're next. We're next. You know, I, I think I think people see an, an environmentalist fighting for, for Earth. No, it's just going to be okay. It's us. It's humanity. We're screwed. Yeah. We're really screwed. But the media and industry portray these things these way, this way. And I, I, I had faith in Canada 10 years ago. And yeah, no, they're going to figure it out. But it got worse after Trump. It got worse. Oh, yeah. Trudeau took a, took a page out of his book and said, hey, I'm going to do that. Just re- regurgitate the same things over and over and over again. 
then pretty soon they're listening and that's what the media plays. It's crazy. It is. It is. And that's what happens when a country or a territory is governed by politics and not by leadership that's based on core values. And I'm not talking about liberal, conservative, NDP, the marijuana party, any of those things. I'm talking about core values, human life, the, the, li- the life of all of our living relationships and the life of the planet. And if you cannot govern a territory where that comes first every single time, then you don't know how to be a leader. You don't know how to be a leader. If you can't save lives, you don't know how to be a leader and you need to move over. And you see that now. People worry about politics. So Trudeau's like, oh, well, what will get me elected? You know, what will get me some of those conservative voters? What will get me this? You, The best leader in the world is the one that is voted out in the next election. And you know why? Because they had the backbone to make some hard decisions around how to save our people and the planet, protect human rights, you know, protect all of these things, you know, protect families, protect children, all of the things that matter in our community, what keeps the human race going, what keeps living things going. And so you can judge um, a leader by the kinds of decisions they make. And when you when you when you're always trying to play to your voting base, this is what this is why we're in the mess we are with COVID, right? You've got like in my province, you've got, you know, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, who cares only about his corporate buddies and his, you know, construction contractors and, and all of those guys and and has not acted as though He's cared for the lives of Ontarians, you know, leaving schools open, restaurants open, gyms open when we've had like astronomical COVID rates and giving mixed messages. And so now now we have kids dying. We have over a thousand kids who have uh, contracted COVID. And, um, you know, we've had eight that have died. So the, the ages are getting younger and younger. So what does a politician do? A politician says, well, it's these corporations that fund my election. And it's all these yahoos, like these fringe right wingers um, who support me. So I think I'm just going to do that. What does a leader do? A leader says, I don't give two craps if I get elected next. My priority is I'm shutting down this province and I am not going to let a single child die, not a man, woman or child die from this. And we will do whatever it takes to provide every support needed. And instead of tell Justin Trudeau, when Justin Trudeau says, we're going to send in the Red Cross, we're going to send in the army. And Doug Ford says, uh, no, that's okay. We're not going to do that unless you barter and give some more vaccines over on this side. Dude, you have a million vaccines sitting in freezers, not getting out to people. So you you can't barter with our lives like that. And that's the problem. You see this all across the country where people are politicking and not leading, which is a, like so different from the way we governed our territories, which was about first and foremost, you know, protecting all of the living things in our territory. And I think, boy, you know, we're in some trouble, but I think think here's the positive side of things that we we not only have Canadians ear on indigenous issues we have Canadians ears on things that matter like health safety well-being protecting the planet you want to go and see those birds you want to be bird watchers you want to hope that they live in the future and that means you have to 
take steps to protect it. So we are also teaching Canadians and all of the settlers on this territory how to be responsible because the most irresponsible thing they could do is vote every four years. I mean, they've been taught in schools and in government that to be a responsible citizen, you vote every four years. That's the most irresponsible thing you could do because that means you just vote and you sit back and you stop being the government that you are. These people aren't the government. It's the people that are the government, not these people who are elected. And if we sit back and let them make all these disastrous mistakes, that's irresponsible on our part. And you see more and more Canadians, more and more organizations, more and more groups, anti-poverty groups, environmental groups, you know, homelessness groups, like unions and others coming together and saying, you know what, these governments aren't taking care of us either. So what do we have to lose by actually coming together and protecting all of living things here on this territory, including human beings? Um, everything that you're saying, but that's just a part of it is what you're touching on. Like when, when we're off camera, I just want to say this to the, the, the people that are watching live stream. Like we, we laugh and we joke and we, we have fun before and after and, and, um, but we, we talk way more than what this is. This is just sort of yeah. the tip of the iceberg and, and um, but it's um we're just like sort of dorks because this is all we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And some stuff we can't and some stuff yeah. we can't talk about publicly. Like I know for anything that's live stream, I try to say as much as I possibly can, but save all the strategy, like the, you know, detailed strategy for just us, because I don't want to empower you know, government officials or CSIS, high CSIS or anybody else who's watching. Yeah. And, and I must say too, this, when Canada knows, um, we, I, here in BC, we have a lot of really good allies. Just before COVID hit, I called a meeting and I think it was, Peter was like two or three days notice. To, we sent it out to 50 organizations and I think Charlene, like 40 showed up and 90 people and, and, wow. and they're, 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 and not just from BC, Washington state. They came up, they came up about 20 of them or something. So it was, that's awesome. we do have a lot of really good allies because they yep. see, they see the truth. It's, it's not just us, it's everybody. And we need to, if it's that way, that let's, let's move forward and create something better for our own future. Tell us about your show or where could we, where could people watch? Okay. Well, also before you get to that, type it in here. So um, we can put it up on secret ecology as well. Oh yeah. Okay. It's very easy. So there's a bunch of ways that you can get me. Um, <clears throat> here's my website, pampalmeter.com. And on my website, you can access um, how to buy my books, for example. You can uh, access my Warrior Life podcast that Ruben's been on. Um, and that's a podcast where we try to uplift the grassroots warriors and advocates and other people really making um, a, a change for Indigenous peoples. Um, you can access through my website, the Warrior Kids podcast. So all of you have kids, we're starting young. We're teaching these, you know, native warriors <clears throat> and allies young about what it means, you know, celebrating everything Indigenous, first of all, how cool we all are in our cultures, but also caring about things like the environment and animals and what we can do about that. I also have a blog. It's called Indigenous Nationhood. It's the same name as my, my book here, where you can um, get all of my blogs. I have a section on all of my publications. So everything I write for Maclean's and Chatelaine and the Globe and Mail and CBC and APTN, like everywhere I publish, it's all I post it all on there. Um, and there are also links to 
my Facebook, my Instagram, my LinkedIn. And most recently, I was dragged kicking and screaming to join TikTok. <clears throat> and so now I'm on TikTok. And I said I could never go to tick on TikTok because they're singing and dancing. And what do I know about dancing? Well, <clears throat> my dancing consists of the chest up. So, I mean, that's about the extent of the dancing you're going to get. But I'm trying to educate a younger generation through humor, through songs, um, celebrating our culture, and also dealing with some hard stuff in politics. And what's great about TikTok is that you don't have to be a content creator. You can just sign up with a user one, two, three name and just watch all of the TikToks. And one thing I find really unique about TikTok is native TikTok. So native people from all over Canada and the US, we're all connected. We all, I mean, for the most part, we all support one another. And then you can connect out to, you know, the Maori in Aotearoa or sovereign Hawaii or native people in Australia. And it, that's like really awesome. People kicking ass and taking names and showing off their culture and, and having their views expressed. And younger people are watching this and they're learning. And it's just, it's fabulous. So, you know, pardon the dancing, but other than that, you know, there's some really positive messages, I think, on TikTok. So those are all the different places you can, <laughs> you can get me. Oh, and my YouTube. Yes, I have a YouTube channel, but you can access it through the um, website too. Much thanks to the folks at Sacred Ecology for allowing me to share this extended clip of the podcast here on Warrior Life Podcast. But this is just part of the show. There's about half an hour of more content, including questions and answer sessions. So make sure you go check out the rest of the podcast at sacredecology.com. And you can find Ruben George, Christine Peterson, Peter McCartney, and everybody else who joined us to hear the rest of the content. And of course, thank you to Ruben for all the amazing work he does and the way in which he inspires the rest of us. Thank you to all the Warrior Life podcast listeners for tuning into my show. I'll make sure to post a link to the full, uncut version of Ruben's podcast episode with me that was on the Sacred Ecology website and also posted on YouTube. Don't forget to go back and listen to the Warrior Life podcast episode that was specifically with Ruben about a year ago so you can learn more about him, his nation, and how best to support them. If you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode. And I'm also on Patreon, so you can support this podcast there. And don't forget, we also have the Warrior Kids podcast to celebrate everything Indigenous, educate about Native rights, and to help kids of all backgrounds become warriors for social justice and earth justice. We can never start too young. We want to inspire education for action in our youth. You can access this Warrior Life podcast or the Warrior Kids podcast from my website at www.pampometer.com. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliog. We'll